We're going to be looking in the Old Testament this morning, uh, continuing on our series on Moses. And uh, you might wonder, how are we going to get from Moses to Palm Sunday? Well, just fasten your seatbelt, folks, and I'll, with God's help, I'll show you. We're going to look at the apex of the Old Covenant, Exodus 19 and 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. May God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated Moses went up to God. This is Mount Sinai, of course. According to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 1, it's been exactly to the day, three months, since he brought them out of Egypt under the awful judgment of the Passover and the glorious deliverance. Depending on which side of the blood you were on, amen? Exactly three months. We've seen them cross the Red Sea, which they could have avoided completely going an easy route along the trade route of the Mediterranean Sea, but they didn't go that way. God seldom takes the easy way. And if you've been following the Lord very long, you know that's true. God seldom, I won't say he won't ever take the easy way, but he seldom takes the easy way. And I do know that Jesus warned us that those broad ways don't always end up well. That broad way and wide way. Frankly, that's why I go a Highway 70 as often as I can. <laughs> kind of suspicious of those wide, broad ways. Our text brings us this morning to what I'm going to call the apex of the Old Covenant. We'll linger around this title for a while as we consider this epic moment when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him his word for his people, engraved on stones with the very finger of God. I'll always wonder what God's handwriting looked like, you know? Engraved with the very finger of God, God gave Moses his law This was the high point of the Old Covenant. Last year was an incredible year, an unusual year for our country as the Mississippi River hit historically low levels all the way from Cairo, Cairo, Illinois, uh, down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and maybe further north and further south. That was just uh, the table I looked at, just uh, head from Cairo, Illinois, to Baton Rouge. The previous low water levels had been set back in 1988, but most of these were eclipsed last year by from one to two feet. That's a lot. We usually, though, hear a whole lot more about the high water levels, and in our part of the world, the high water uh, level of the Mississippi was set back in 1927, Uh, but the most recent flood that made the top ten back in 2011. I had the privilege of standing on the bank of the Mississippi River last fall, uh, looking down a steep bluff to the waterline, far, 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 far down. Actually, it wasn't the Mississippi, it was Arkansas, but uh, it's close enough, okay? It's down there where the two rivers came together, and 
outside of the duplication there. But uh, I did cross over the Mississippi River when it was down low. And if you did, you remember uh, what it looked like. Uh, what was amazing to me was to stand there looking way, way down at the water and remembering that my friend had showed me a place in his cabin where the water got to just a few years ago when it was so high. And back in 1927, it was about 10 feet higher than that. It's hard to imagine. I mean, 60, 70 foot higher. The apex, you see, is the high water point, the low water point. We know that those always come. They're set for us, the apex. Once the river crests, it may hold that crest for a few days, but then it's going to begin to go down, the apex. The apex of the old covenant comes when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai and received the law. The old covenant would never again reach that high point. It was downhill all the way from there. And it's crucial for us to understand this. It's crucial to our understanding of the doctrine of salvation and God's plan and purpose for redemption, God's plan in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that uh, play out this morning. And I'm going to start at the beginning for the benefit of those of you who may be new believers. You know, if you've looked at the Bible much at all, you know that it's divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament. That speaks of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A crucial passage about this is found in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. An old covenant and a new covenant. And as we go through the time when Moses met with God on the mountain, that apex, that pinnacle point, the high water mark of the old covenant, we'll see God writing out those details of the law. And those details of the law would be broken both literally and figuratively, as we'll see in coming weeks, by the children of Israel. Jeremiah tells us, the new covenant would not be written in stone. It would be written on the hearts of people. And the word of God would not just be in a book, but it would be in our minds. That's the new covenant. Because of this, this new covenant would be a superior covenant. It would be an eternal covenant. And Jesus tells us how that new covenant is going to come to pass. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, he said, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, Jesus was not saying, as many people unfortunately believe, that when we take communion and drink the cup, it literally takes away our sins or that it literally becomes the blood of Jesus 
Uh, it does not. In fact, Jesus would say, I will not drink any from henceforth of this fruit of the vine. So obviously, when Jesus implemented the Lord's Supper, he was not saying, when this is my blood, that this was literally blood. Uh, no, they understood what he meant. Uh, this is a picture of his blood. That's what he was saying. And the people who believe the most, strangely, that uh, somehow by drinking that communion cup, it takes away your sins. The people who believe that the most don't drink the cup. Somebody else drinks it for them. Now, they can take the bread, but they never touch the blood if that really was what it was. Someone else drinks it for them. See, what Jesus was saying, that this cup pictured or represented his blood of the new covenant. That blood that the Bible tells us so emphatically cleanses us from all our sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the new covenant. You see, it's important that I tell you today that it's not the juice in the cup that takes away your sins, and neither is it the water in baptism that takes away your sin. Juice can't take away your sin. Water can't take away your sin. And the reason for that is because when you believe in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ takes away all your sin. There's nothing more for the juice in the cup or for the water in baptism to take away. Where is that found? It's 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Not some, all. All. Now, in order, though, to get this new covenant, old covenant, this new covenant that is brought about through the blood of Jesus Christ, in order to get this firmly set in our minds, we're going to build our discussion of this and begin our discussion of Moses and the time when he went up on the mountain, the apex of the Old Covenant. We're going to build it around a couple of New Testament passages that discuss this event in great detail. And you'll see that as it plays out. Primarily that 2 Corinthians 3, uh, a little bit in 4, and Hebrews chapter 10 uh, with just a little bit in chapter 8. And we'll start there as we look then at the shortcomings of the Old Covenant. The shortcomings of the Old Covenant. This was the Old Covenant, that uh, the apex, it's where it was started at. It was at its highest point when Moses went up on the mountain with God. But the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Does that sound familiar? It should. He's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah that I read you just a few moments ago. And so he brings up that passage, that critical passage in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah prophesied that God was going to make a new covenant. He makes an obvious point. If the old covenant would have been everything that was needed, God wouldn't have made provision for a new one. The very fact that we needed a new one meant that the old one wasn't sufficient. There was a fault in it. Now, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 7 that the fault in the old covenant was not in the law. The law was fine. The fault is in us. It's our own sinful, fallen human nature, he says in Romans chapter 7. Uh, But the, the essence of it is this. The law could show us our sin. 
And it still does, by the way. But the law had no provision by which those sins could be removed or taken away. Hebrews 10.1. See, this is Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of those things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Moses received, you see, while he was on the mountain with God, he received that elaborate system of animal sacrifices that were part of the Old Covenant, but the blood of those animals could never take away sin. They were designed to be a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and they go all the way literally back to the Garden of Eden, to the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, and the first sin of humanity. When God killed animals and took their clothes in to provide a bloody covering for Adam and Eve and hide their nakedness. This introduced the principle of the blood atonement in the Old Testament. Whereby a covering for sin could be provided. But it didn't take the sin away. Verse 4 of Hebrews 10, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Under the law then, you see, men could see their sin. They could see their badness. But it couldn't take their badness away. If a sacrifice for sin that they offered in that way, the writer of Hebrews brings up in Hebrews 10 and 2, uh, if they could take away sin, then would they not have ceased to be offered? Then why did they have to keep offering? That's the point that he's making. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Every year. They had to watch the priest recite the principles of the law that had been violated. 640 some odd uh, commandments in the law. And all of them had been broken. It was a long list as a priest would stand there with his hands on the head of that scapegoat. And the list would go on and on and on and on. Confessing the sins of the people. Why? To give them a reminder, year by year, by year, by year, by year, it was a reminder of the sins that they had committed. Sins that were being laid upon this scapegoat, but next year, they'd have to come back and do it all over again. It was a reminder of their sins every year. And so the first fault that was there in the Old Covenant was that the Old Covenant could show them their badness, but it could not take away their badness. But then it also brought blindness. So we see the writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, is going back to this same moment that we're seeing in Exodus 19. Moses going up on the mountain getting the law. But we also see then that same thing happening in 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 13, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Now Paul is referring to something that's not going to happen until Exodus chapter 34. But in case you don't remember, Moses went up on the mountain with God, spent the time with God and came down from the mountain with his face glowing so brightly that people can look at him. And so Moses put a veil over his face. Initially, Moses didn't know. That his face was glowing. What a great moment that was. To be glowing and not know you're glowing. But it wasn't long until he figured it out. 
He put a veil on initially so that people could interact with him and talk to him. But he kept it on because the glory was fading away. And he didn't want people to see that the glory was fading away. And so initially he put it on for a good reason so they could commune, but he didn't take it off and so they didn't see that glory was fading. And because of that, verse 14 says, their minds were blinded. And so along with that old covenant that came through Moses, then not only came the problem of their badness that the old covenant could not take away, but also their blindness. Until this day, Paul says, that same veil remains unlifting in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away, taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, it veil lies on their heart. Because the people didn't see then that the glory was fading, it put that veil of blindness on their hearts so that the law, with all of its rules and rituals and sacrifices, would never bring them into the presence of God. Even Moses could not have a face-to-face moment with God. For God would tell Moses, no man can see my face and survive. Even Moses couldn't have a face-to-face with God. But he did see Moses' back, and we'll, we'll have a great time in that message in a few weeks. We will. He, he did allow Moses to see his back, and he hit him in the cleft of a rock. It's a great story. Moses' experience with God was never duplicated. No one else spent time with God and came down from that encounter with God with their face glowing like Moses did. Moses couldn't teach people how to glow. Couldn't. He couldn't make any provision or even write it down in his law that said, do this and then you'll glow. No, mm -mm. it never happened again. No one else was able to attain to the same experience that Moses had. Only him. Elijah would go to heaven without the touch of the death dew upon his brow, R.G. Lee said. Go out in a flaming chariot of glory. But Elijah's face never glowed. Solomon would build a temple and have incredible visions of God. But but Solomon never glowed with glory. Daniel would have marvelous visions and revelations and was greatly beloved, as would Ezekiel. But Daniel nor Ezekiel would ever glow with glory. Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. No one ever glowed with glory like Moses did. He could experience that, you see, for himself, but he couldn't pass it along to anyone else. And so we see then that the old covenant didn't deal with their badness, their sinfulness. It didn't deal, and it caused them blindness because they did not understand that the glory of the old covenant, this apex crowning moment, this high water mark of the old covenant, that it was going to be downhill from there, that the best that they were ever seeing was when Moses came down from the mountain with the word of God in his hands, glowing with the glory of God.
And so as we see then the, the shortcomings of the old covenant, we also see the superiority of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 10 again. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus said, I came to do your will. And by that will, the writer of Hebrews says, the will of God, Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice for sins. So that the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sins. And yet by contrast, the blood of Jesus Christ takes them away forever. What a contrast. And therefore you see how that we jump from Moses in the Old Testament. To, all the way to Palm Sunday and the events of Passion Week. And the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It just kind of fits right in the narrative. It's what's going on. If you understand what's happening, you're seeing the apex of the first covenant. Uh, the first covenant that was at its peak and going downhill, but one day it's going to be replaced. And that was the plan all along. That was the plan all along. That one day this old covenant would be replaced by the new one. You remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that not one jot or one tittle of the old covenant or the, of the law would pass away until it's all fulfilled. Remember, he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. Writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, that's Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. No more sacrifice could ever be made for sin. Any temptation, any idea that they should even uh, attempt to do such a thing should be suppressed. Why? Because when Jesus Christ died on Calvary, the debt of sin had been paid in full. And there was nothing else, no other sacrifice that could ever be made. So that by one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In a practical way, what that means is that when you and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on Calvary, when we understand that we are sinners and that Jesus paid the price for our sins and trust in him, then we are perfected forever. Forever. You see, in the Old Testament economy, there was this continual requirement of a sacrifice for sins and a constant reminder of their sinfulness year after year after year. But in the New Covenant, there's a promise of forgiveness through Jesus Christ so that Jesus said, when we believe on him, we shall not then come into condemnation. He that heareth my word, he said, uh, John chapter 5 and verse 24, and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. That's Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Don't you just love that? Shall not come to condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So that under the Old Testament, there was that constant reminder of their sins. 
you know what do we remember in the new covenant? We remember that our sins are paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sin. So what the law could not do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He provided a means by which the guilt of our sin could be taken away by faith in the blood of Jesus. That's how the new covenant deals with our badness. But it also deals with our blindness. And again, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with open face, unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as uh, the spirit of the Lord So that with Moses in the old covenant, the glory was fading, but not so with us. You know what that word from glory to glory means? It means the best is yet to come. (laughs) We're going from glory to glory. There's an ever-increasing glory as we are changed into the image of Jesus Christ. What takes the blindness away? The Holy Spirit of God does who lives in us. As he takes up residence in, he works to change us into the image of Christ, our ultimate and eternal destiny. So we we see the shortcomings of the old covenant, and we see then the superiority of the new covenant that can do what the old covenant couldn't do, and that it takes away our badness, and it takes away our blindness by the power of the Spirit of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Then we also notice the sufficiency of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, remember two passages. Hebrews 10, 2 Corinthians 3. All of them going all over what happened with Moses on the mountain. Giving us this Holy Spirit inspired commentary. Telling us what was going on. How it happened. Why it had to play out this way. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Who has also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, what Moses brought down from the mountain, if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? The passage makes a simple point. Eternal things are more valuable than temporary things. It's a point made again and again in Scripture as we're called to set our affection on things above and not on the things on the earth. Moses' glory was temporary. Moses' glory was not transferable. Moses' glory was an experience he had, but he could not pass that experience on to anyone else. And nobody else ever got that same experience that Moses had. But the ministry of the new covenant, then through the Spirit, and might you not notice That is ministered by us. God has made us, us. Paul was writing the church at Corinth. Us, New Testament believers are included in this. Sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. And that means, basically, that we can do what Moses couldn't do. 
We minister the new covenant to others. So that the experience that we've had with the blood of Jesus, we can pass on to others. We can't do it, of course. That's why he tells us it is ministered by us. How that God then has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter. Not like we did in the Old Testament. Not with those points that were written down in stone. But things that are written in our hearts. And because of this, he says this new covenant is more glorious than the old one. Now we might struggle a little bit with that. We've got a church full of believers here this morning. But I'll be honest with you, I don't see a glowing one in the house. And if I'm glowing and from where you sit, it's only because these lights are so bright. It's not because any. Not, not one of us had to put a veil on. No, I don't see a veil anywhere in the house. You didn't have Oh, I knew I forgot something this morning. I, I forgot my veil, sorry. No, there's not a veil anywhere. Nobody's glowing. So surely, surely that old covenant was better than the new. No, no, no. And I tell you that not on the authority of Richard. I tell you that on the authority of 2 Corinthians 3. Which tells us that the ministry of the new covenant is more glorious than of the old. And so he'd say to them in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, and I love this clearly, he said, You are an epistle of Christ. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You see, the heart in Scripture represents the spiritual side of us, and your spirit and mine has the handwriting of Jesus Christ all over it. He did not write on tablets of stone. He has written all over our hearts, over the spiritual side of us. And not only that, but it's clear. You are clearly, clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the heart. Something that can be seen and understood by people. Remember, Paul was writing to folks at the church at Corinth, far from perfect, far from sinless. We know a lot about the struggles of those people, but clearly they were an epistle written out by Christ on your hearts. You see, you don't, this doesn't mean that we're sinless. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we're without flaws. It means that when you were saved, Jesus Christ made an eternal difference in your life. And because the Holy Spirit lives in you and the Holy Spirit lives in me, then we are an epistle. And it is not an epistle of how that God is going to make perfect and sinless people out of this old thing. It's not. This old thing, if you want to know more about it, come tonight. And we'll be talking about it in Romans chapter 8. This old human body is so bad and so corrupt that God's not even going to bother to take it to heaven. This thing is going to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. But until that happens, we're going to struggle with this. But what it does show us is that the struggle, though it is real, is actually working out to sanctification. God grows us. He changes us. Day by day, week by week, here a little, there a little, 
precept upon precept, line upon line, he changes us. And while he is changing us, he is also working in us to be sufficient ministers of the new covenant so that you can in turn shine in the hearts of other people. So the discussion goes on then. Remember 2 Corinthians 3? The discussion goes on in 2 Corinthians 4. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God put his light in us. Remember Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Paul would go on and say in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's a message for another time, although I can point it out to you quickly. That he said, do all things without complaining and disputing. If you just live your life without grumbling and arguing all the time, you will stand out in this sin-cursed world. And when somebody asks you what is different about you, what has changed about you, I remember how you used to be, what has happened to you, you can say that I've had an encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And anything good that's going on in me is what he's doing in me. He makes us sufficient ministers of the new covenant. So we can ask our children, what's it mean? And they'll tell you, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. They'll sing it loud, too. I tell you, they like that song. I liked it when I was a kid. That's how old it is. I mean, I... It's the light of mine. I learned that vacation Bible school. I'm going to let it shine. Still a good song. And our light does shine. The new covenant, you see, makes it possible for us to pass that on to others. So a couple of quick observations this morning. First of all, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we do not have a continual reminder of our sin. We don't come to Easter Sunday asking Jesus to forgive us all over again. To forgive us for how we've messed up this year. No, no. Instead, we come together and celebrate that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all sin. That by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Yeah, that's what it's all about. We have faith in his blood. The Bible tells us that. Through faith in his blood that Jesus Christ then becomes our propitiation. The one who pays the price for our sins. I ask you this morning. Have you trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ? You see the gospel is, is, is not just about who Jesus is. Well yeah I believe in Jesus. The devils believe in Jesus. But the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. So number one we got to understand we're sinners. Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried. This is 1 Corinthians 15. And that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. This is the gospel. 
To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ savingly is to believe that when he died, he died for my sins and he paid the price for my sins. And when he came out of the grave, he proved that those sins had been paid for. And I am trusting in him as my Savior. I believed on him. I've received what he did for me. I know that I can't do this myself. And my testimony then plays out in that great old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Sing it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Stand together. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus.